0: Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co founder of this podcast, and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the biotech industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. You can check us out at clora.com. I'm very excited to welcome Volker Herman, CEO of Sonata Therapeutics and CEO partner at Flagship Pioneering. Thanks so much for joining us today, Volker.
1: Yeah, we're also great being here. I couldn't be any more excited about talking to you today. It's going to be fun.
0: Wonderful. Yes, looking forward to the conversation. So, Volker, to kick us off, if you would, just talk to us about the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today.
1: Well, that's quite a story indeed. So, but it starts as so often just with my parents and my dad. When I was growing up in Germany, my father actually was the head of R&D for the German organization of a large American pharmaceutical company. And so, you know, during high school, as a kid, as you do in the summer break, to make some money, I just wrote in the labs there. And then really talking to the scientists, talking to my dad, got very excited about the work that we're doing there. After graduating from high school, I had a really good sit down with my dad and asked him, you know, if I wanted to join pharmaceutical industry, what degree would be best? And he didn't hesitate for a second to started a medical degree. He said, you know, I just want really to give you the broadest range of personality. And so I thought, that sounds great. Let's do that. So I went to medical school first in Germany, and then spent some time in England in London and Paris, and came over to Michigan. And along the way, I really fell in love with actually taking care of patients. So after graduating, instead of joining the pharmacy industry right away, indeed, I actually started my training as a cardiologist and clinical pharmacologist, and did that for quite a few years, last at UCSD in San Diego. But then in 1999, decided to join Pfizer Pharmaceuticals, came over back to Germany, the German country organization, and as they say, kind of moved over to the dark side immediately, became a product manager actually there, and the career went really great, was well on the way to become the German country manager, when Pfizer decided to do a fundamental restructuring of the European organization. Basically, what they decided to do was take a lot of the responsibility in producing materials and insights from the medical teams and the commercial teams from the countries and put it into three hubs in order to create and really create a fund management business model. And I thought that was a great opportunity to run one of those hubs, applied to actually be, become the hub leader one of those. And so the hubs ended up being in Paris, London, and the really well known city of Karlsruhe in Germany that nobody has ever heard of. <laughs> but nevertheless, we actually got and became one of those hubs. And that's where we became a great opportunity, bringing in about 200 folks from 27 different countries, informed that new business model with a wonderful experience. Certainly taught me in a, a broad range about the importance of cross-cultural sensitivity and taught me the enormous amount of the importance and the power of diversity. Not always easy, but if you get it to work, obviously just wonderful, wonderful to see. Did that about for four years, and thank came to headquarters for New York and Manhattan and basically take on an executive leadership role in the primary care business unit, but at that time, I was growing increasingly frustrated um, with some of our uh, business in a specific sense. You know, I was very excited about all the great new products we were launching, and at the time, I'd been working a lot of time in the CNS pain space. And you yeah. know, we launched a broad range of great new medicines in and Alzheimer's, and schizophrenia, and chronic pain. But I was also still spending a lot of time seeing patients, talking to caregivers, talking to physicians. It became just clear to me that, you know, with all the impact the pills had, the overall impact on the full quality of life of these patients still often remain very small. So to me, it seemed a very logical step. And I was a bit ahead of my time 12 years ago, that Pfizer should become a healthcare company rather than just being a pharmaceutical company. So I thought it was a great idea to actually go to the board of the ELT of Pfizer and pitch the idea of starting a service and solution business in addition to our pill business. That was a pretty daring task at the time because we were very busy fixing our R&D pipeline. But for whatever reason, they thought it was a great idea. And so I got to launch that business. And that was probably one of the most exciting and most impactful experiences of my career. Because basically what this allowed me to do was really step back and ask the question, you know, if you really wanted to treat a schizophrenia patient successfully, if you really want to treat trying to go back pain patients successfully. What are those breakpoints that actually currently happen in the prolonged journey that keep them from actually really feeling a lot better and actually are being shared. So we created some great patient journeys, I got to hire a lot of folks who weren't pharmaceutical folks. They were social workers, psychologists, we worked with Google, Apple, Qualcomm. And in the end, our customers and key colleagues in developing some of these offerings became health systems by Keidler became peers, like uh, commercial pay organizations like United and Optum, Humana, and so on. And that, of course, as you can imagine, provided me with an amount of insight and understanding, not looking at them anymore as the enemy on the other side of price negotiations for your pills, but true partners that had, had, actually had an interest in co-understanding what would it take to get their patient population better, and what could we do together? And so, to give you an idea, you know, the kind of offerings we were providing, I give you a great example I would loved If you look at patients who have to undergo full knee joint replacement, it was well known back then, and still today, that about 20% of those do not benefit from the surgery. The reason is the pain has moved from the knee to the brain. It's a chronic pain condition at that point. You can take off the knee, the pain is still there. That's a bad situation for everybody involved. Mostly important, the patient, but it's also bad for the surgeon and the reputation. It's bad for the health system, it's bad for the pair. So we were looking into a solution to help all and everybody involved, mostly and of course, the patient. And what we came up with was a predictive algorithm that actually would predict what patients would not benefit from the intervention. Well, that was good in one sense, right? Because of course, you shouldn't operate on a patient that can't benefit, but the surgeons didn't like it. And the lesson I learned at the time is you, ne- you really need to create win-win-win situations if you want something to work, right? So the next step then was, in addition to the algorithm, we actually produced a of behavior therapy. Together with Apple, that actually after undergoing that treatment for six months, the patients would then again benefit. And so now you have a true win 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 situation, which was absolutely fantastic. And so that was the kind of offerings we produced. The commercial model was basically a reimbursement on cost savings related to better outcomes. And it was a really successful business. Um, after doing this for a couple of years, I'll say my aspiration for the business and Pfizer started to depart a little bit. And it also prompted my departure from Pfizer. Because, you know, I'd learned how much I really enjoyed being an entrepreneur, how much I'd really enjoyed building that new organization, and how much I really enjoyed having profound impact on patient lives in a much more realistic way as well. It also reminded me that patient impact indeed was most important to me as it always had been. And that was time for me to return to, I think, biotech and the world where I could really drive and have a bigger decision rights in their own way as well. I joined a small biotech company down in Raleigh-Durham called Biomet. Chief commercial officer, only about 25 people. That was my first biotech experience and was a great one, especially with regard to fully understanding the power of successfully working together with the board. I you know biotech and any company, you know, boards are used in many different ways. I think board selection and really picking great board members that really can provide good strategic guidance and challenge is incredibly important and has been incredibly important in my journey in biotech. From there, I moved up here to Boston and joined a really cool company called Screen I think you had their CEO, Amon Charay, on here a couple yes. of years ago. Great guy, great company. And spent about two and a half years there in helping them to realign and reproach as the you getting ready for the IPO. But then, you know, about three years ago, I started talking to Flagship and the new bar in Duck Hole. And I got really, really intrigued by this new CEO partner role, which allowed me to be a CEO of a company at Flagship, but also be a leadership member at the fund, and most importantly, got really intrigued by the relentless commitment to go after really, really untapped and impossible science. I think that's what got me here to now be the CEO of Sonata and be a CEO partner at Flagship. Wonderful,
0: thank you, Volker. If I could ask you to think back to your first foray into biotech from big pharma, now your second and third, obviously in positions of different influence now that you're a CEO, but I'm curious how Your approach to running a biotech has evolved after your first foray to now where you are?
1: I think, you know, I would say, with that, obviously, as a CEO, you finally reached that point where, obviously, in the end, you know, you have enormous ability to influence what the company is about to do and where you want to focus. And in that regard, I would say, I always have been intrigued by the fact that most biotech folks I talk to, especially when them, the young, first or second job in the biotech industry, they look at big pharma as a really bad thing, right? They say, oh God, all slow, it's, it's all terrible. They're slow. It's all a bad thing. And I would say, you know, even in my first job and still today, I would say, you know, big pharma teaches you a couple of things that I've used in all of my biotech jobs. Some of those are the importance of talent. I think, you know, big pharma is really good at understanding that talent is incredibly important and in investing in talent. Training, which not all biotech companies do well, I think, is really important. I've done it in my first biotech job, and I'm even doing it more so now. I think getting the best talent, investing in the talent, training good managers, young managers, to be effective is incredibly important. Cultural risk taking is something that I had to learn. I mean, risk taking in big pharma is not necessarily what big pharma is known to. And I think that on my journey, you know, I've learned how important and how powerful it is to have an organization that has a culture of risk-taking and I tend to teach everybody how to do that really, really well. And I think if you do that well, that can be really, really impactful. And then I would say just embracing and thriving with constant change. And then unknown can be a great thing versus the unknown is the enemy. And honestly, scares everybody, but really, how do you create a culture around embracing change and understanding that change is prominent in biotech, how you actually really embrace that completely and make it a strength and something that people thrive on. is a journey I've actually been on since I joined biotech and I will continue to actually get better and better at but I think have learned an awful lot in the last couple of years.
0: Yeah, that's great. One of the things that you and I had talked a bit about in San Francisco when we met was the importance of thinking about patient impact. Yeah. And I'd love if you could Perhaps educate us on how you think about the importance of patient impact, particularly in a biotech setting and how you're pulling from past experiences at Pfizer.
1: Again, this is at risk of sounding a little cheesy. My decision to stop being a physician, actually, joining the industry in the end was very much driven by my belief that I could have more impact on more patient lives in the industry than as an individual physician. And I actually have to say, I'm very happy to say that has actually indeed become true. And it has undoubtedly been my compass for almost every single decision I've made along my career. That's also driven by the fact that both my parents have been ill before they passed a couple of years ago for a long time. One of the Parkinson's patients, the other one is a patient. And so, you know, I've been always reminded very close to home how much of an impact these diseases have and how much impact we still need to have in all of those diseases, actually, and how much need there is. Mm-hmm. So that regard, you know, I use it now as a CEO. Purpose to me is incredibly important to any company. And I think, you know, one of the big privileges we have in our industry is purpose. I mean, what we do has a real tremendous potential of impact on so many patients' lives. But I've also learned, which was one of the greatest learnings in my first biotech uh, company, you know, to me, it seemed very obvious that patient centricity, talking about the patient, should get everybody going and should be the purpose why everybody is in biotech. But I had a great discovery with a young scientist one day and just said, you know, don't get this wrong, but the patient is really not why I'm here. I'm healthy. My parents are healthy. I've never been in a hospital. I don't know patients. I'm here for the cool science. And now the real light bulb moment, I said, wow, that's really important, right? So when we talk about purpose, now we're at Sonata, we really talk about what is it that drives you? What is it actually that brings you here every day? But I am very adamant about why are you here at Sonata? So at times, I think we, we talked about this in San Francisco as well. I'll ask my employees to write a love letter to themselves or to me or anybody that says, why are you working here at Sonata? Not over at Squeeze, not over at Velo, not over at Generate, why are you here? I think it's important for them to reflect once a year, more often from, from time to time. Why is this the company I want to be? And why is the company that I'm going to bring the best I can bring to a company? So now then, that's why you should be here.
0: I love the love letter, by the way. I'm yeah. going to use that if you don't mind. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so I'm curious as you think about the role of payers in the current infrastructure and architecture of pharma and biotech, you you had an interesting view of the importance of payers and when to talk to them. If you could talk to us a little bit about your viewpoint there and how that's evolved.
1: I would love to. It's a great question. This is thanks to this integrated health business experience where I'll tell you an anecdote. I I know about my first meeting with a large payer organization United Healthcare up in Minneapolis. And I brought my team, which was a great Pfizer team, you know, gifted, talented folks, pretty young, and granted the room. And in the room for the meeting, which was a ball of pain, chronic go back pain, was a group of 12, very senior ladies and gentlemen, and mostly gentlemen, i see at the time, not that much diversity yet. But the level of quality, we were looking at fundamentally ex-chairman's, so all you know, the Department of Pain Treatment, or of of universal hospitals, fundamentally really key researchers, everything else. And I said, wow. What did I miss and what I learned is that, you know, these companies have a, an enormous amount of key talent, have invested an enormous amount, and lost really analytic capabilities. I would argue many of them actually have now really outperformed pharmaceutical industry and in biotech for sure. sure in these capabilities of innovation centers and are eager to understand how can we indeed work together in getting to better patient outcomes. So, you know, what I learned is really the moment you start understanding the rural health systems. Here is the industry play and you understand the role, how we can collaborate this enormous potential. So, you know, here as organizations like United or Optum, Humana are very open to actually consider can we run clinical trials in their populations? Because it's important to them to really assess new therapies in their populations. They're very eager in honestly looking at analytical capabilities about, can we measure the impact you have? The less we look at them as the enemy, and the more we see the partner early engage and understand their needs, what data would they like to see, what data do they need to see to come to a discussion conclusion, the better off all of us will be. By the way, I would say the same thing about the regulatory bodies as well. I would say the earlier you go out and talk to the FDA or the EMA and so on, and really learn about their thinking and the advice they can give you, the better off you're going to be.
0: Great. So now with that background, Volk, let's switch gears and talk a bit about Sonata, what drew you there, and what you're pursuing there now?
1: Yeah, Sonata, as I said, what I like about flagship is indeed that I think every single company we start really goes after a very different perspective of science, often very untapped perspective of science. And here, yeah, Sonata, what intrigued me is really that I think we are asking a fundamentally different question to a very fundamental problem, which is in our case for we'll start cancer, and will be many other diseases. And the way we ask the question really is, you know, goes like, what if we could design a single therapeutic, which reprograms the disease cell? So in cancer, the cancer cell to become the coordinator of cure. So in other words, as I like to say, could we turn the villain to become the hero of the story? And, you know, I find that very intriguing because I have to tell you, I've never thought about this until I started joining Sonal Rang, Sonal in that way myself. I've been telling the story many, many times. And pretty much every single time the reaction I get is, wow, that's pretty cool. That's really different, but it makes an awful lot of sense. And that's exactly the reaction that I had. Because when you do that, of course, your entire perspective changes, right? If we stay with cancer, which is a key area of, of the work we're doing at Sonata right now. In cancer, I think in general terms, we look at cancer as the perfect mm-hmm. villain, right? Uh, really good cells gone bad. And so what we're trying to do is kill them. And, you know, we've been pretty successful, I think, over the last decades in coming up with different ways of doing that. And we've also seen, you know, then, of course, combining different approaches here, be it toxicity with IO and so on, is in general terms showing some great progress. But we also have to agree that there's still enormous unmet need. And so now that we've been asking the question well, what imagine a world in which you actually could say, rather than putting cancer in the middle of everything and have everybody coming in from the outside in and try to kill it. Imagine you would actually understand the cancer and environment so well, and you could reprogram that cell that currently is sending out negative signals, pro-tumor signals, reprogram it to actually send out anti-tumor signals, and in the end, kill the cancer off by itself. We thought it would be a pretty cool idea. And that's what got me intrigued, and that's what got me here. Now, when you do that, of course, a couple of important things change as well. And you and I talked about this in San Francisco. Your fundamental approach to drug development changes completely, because I think it's fair to say traditional drug discovery, you know, often is a bit of a reductionist approach, right? I mean, we yeah. have a hypotheses hypothesis, we think of a new target, receptor, or a pathway, we try to make a true compound. Along the way, we hope actually it's going to have sure efficacy. We learn a bit about what's going on. And then, you know, sometimes that may or may not work. And I think in, overall. It's a pretty big guess, and it's a pretty big whole principle to say, well, hopefully it will work and hopefully a single target can really re-engineer very complex biology, like in the case of cancer. One of the most flippant ways I like to talk about Sonata Rowell is actually, I say, we're the company that likes to know, not to guess. Now, if you want to know. You're going to have to actually really switch the drug discovery process basically on from left to right, as I like to say, right? So we like to start with the end of mine. So if you want to know, the first thing you want to know is really what changes in the multicellular cancer and microenvironment do I need to drive to actually drive cure? Once I understand that, obviously, and I want to understand that, I'm going to have to understand what signals in this microenvironment will I need to see released by the cancer cell in our approach to actually drive that biology. And once I understand that, then I actually engineer a therapeutic, and That could be a small molecule, that could be an ADC, that could be a, a gene therapy that will indeed, in, indeed induce that very biology. So we like to know upfront what exact changes need to happen in this environment and then how can we engineer those versus actually guessing and hoping that certain targets we may hit may contribute to such a market environment. So it's a fundamental discovery. Great. And Volker, I'm
0: curious, going back to the comment of patient impact, particularly as you think about the type of talent that high growth, early stage biotechs attract, perhaps there's folks on there where this is their first go around in biotech. I think you were alluding to this, that they're interested in the science, but obviously we're in a sector that is laden with risk. One out of every few thousand assets actually makes it out to market. I'm curious, how do you help perhaps newbies in biotech think about that aspect of risk and balancing that obviously with you know patient impact.
1: I think so the patient impact part is actually what brings even a lot of the young scientists here well because when we tell the story and I tell the story the way I just did, and especially if they are coming from, you know, a postdoc or a PhD in which they've worked in the cancer space. I remember having a great young Indian client he's joining us from Heidelberg, where she was at the Kempsey Center, and she said, you know, the moment I talk to you, you lay out what you're doing, and knew that I need to join Sonata because it makes so much sense how you think about it. And I think that's great because, you know, as I said, purpose and patient impact is acting such an incredible driver, it drives the sense of urgency we have here at Sonata at, at a very high level. The reason it helps us as well. The risk, of course, is the knowing versus guessing, right? I mean, I think any scientist is, I think, more likely actually to be happy in a in a place where they feel we know and we're not hoping, we're not guessing so much, right? And our platform is really set up to actually help us to know every single step and know more every single step along along the way. And I think they've seen in many other environments, including in academia. I will give you a, a simple example. You know, one of the early experiments we did the Sumana this three or four, four three years ago, we actually looked at looked a at hundred different set of toxic drugs and we were asked the question, well, obviously they kill cancer cells pretty well. What else do they do? And one of the things we were interested in was looking at effects on T cells. And what turned out was actually about a third of those, and those are all drugs used today in, in clinic, almost all of them, some very successful. About a third of them actually completely suppressed T cells. About a third of them was about neutral. And about a third of them actually has a very positive effect on the T cells. Funny enough, you know, quite a few of those who are actually were supposing T-cells had published studies in which they showed they had no extension secret C- practice PD-1. Well, no surprise there, but when published, they didn't know why. We do know, right? So our platform allows us to actually see things others do not see. We're generating insights that others don't see early in the drug discovery and drug development process. And that helps us to deal with risk-pesting in a very different way. We just learn a lot of insights and a lot of important aspects along the way sometimes it may lead us to actually terminate programs earlier because if we don't see things coming together the way we think they should be, we'll terminate them early. And that's management of risk. But we also actually see continuous data whether actually I think confirmed that we are on the right track with the programs we actually are really, really excited about.
0: Thanks. That's wonderful advice. If I could ask you for to go deeper in another area, given what you're pursuing right now and the multitude of indications that you can pursue. Given your vast experience in big pharma as well as in biotech, talk to us about how you think about indication selection and where do you go first, second, and third, and how you triage the opportunities.
1: I would say first things first. that come down to what is the biology that we are pursuing yeah. is our approach leading us help to have truly really differentiated impact, and the differentiator is important to me. And not surprising, all well to you by now. I cannot talk about payers and, and and access and real impact, and not say you know I think we believe what we have to do and what we want to do here is create a aid product, and the biology needs to generate that. Second, then I think is unmet need. So if the biology honestly really kind of gives that, then a very important aspect to us is where we see highest unmet need. Cancer is an example where many people could say, well, yeah, there's high unmet need, but it's also very competitive. And I would say, I agree with that. I think our approach is so truly different from everything else anybody else is doing. And we so firmly believe that we have the potential to transform the way you go to treat cancer, that we actually felt, you know, my, some other people might say, why aren't you doing rare disease? Why aren't you doing something else a easier? I would say, I so firmly believe in, in our approach, and our platform, that we think why not proof in cancer, that we actually really can do that. So, I'm in the, I think is the second really important one. Third one is, I'm a firm believer in the power of data now. I think the IML is a really important area. And the other question was, you know, where can we indeed fastest generate and get access to data in the sense of combining publicly available data with the vast amount of data that we're generating other right now to make sense of what we're doing it's a really kind of increase and improve our approach as quickly as possible. And that again led us to cancer at this point. Just because there was such enormous knowledge and databases available for us to do that. So I would say, you know, those three probably played enough to keep role in our, in our decision.
0: And now we're in a very different environment in the life sciences sector than we were one to two years ago. I'm curious how you're perceiving the current landscape and what folks should be thinking about and be wary of other leaders that are listening. And then also how the current landscape is informing how you're operating Sonata.
1: Yeah, so I mean, obviously, I'll say I've been in this industry you now 25 years. This is probably one of the tougher environments <laughs> I can remember us operating. And even though I will say coming out of JPM, I'm pretty optimistic that towards the end of 23, I think in 24, you're going to see some return to some more normality. I think a couple of important things, you know, listen, in finance markets, I think the pendulum likes to swing pretty widely from one side to the other. I think it's fair to say we were in such a hot market with regard to valuations, with regard to amounts of raises in a serious A, serious B world that uh, I think, you know, indeed, this uh, lost a lot. Uh, I think we all would have loved maybe not to see a correction, but I think it was time for a correction with regard to, to many different aspects of the market. I think what that has done right now is, you know, obviously it's not easy to get access to money, right? For private companies and public companies. I think we're currently seeing a very, Heavy focus, and I would say too heavy at this point. Pendulum is a little too far to the right on clinical stage companies, right? But I think, again, probably to some extent understandable. So I think, you know, for other investors that probably still are on the sideline to come back in and start investing, first probably into public sectors with huge discounts, but then again, in the private sector, a couple of things are important, which we've taken to heart here so as well. I think number one is. How do you balance the power of a really, really cool platform technology with delivering therapeutics? In other words, you know, there was a time where I think last two years, if you had a really cool story and a lot of promise uh, and good telling in the company, I think you could not deliver ADC for years and years and years, and the rest of the of have actually been willing to give you money. I think right now, you're going to have to focus. You're going to have to be much more focused on honestly. Really, where do you think? You can actually really bring through points for the platform home urgently. And that has to be, how do you get your products and how can you create a really, I think, very clear path to products and a sustainable pipeline, of products coming out of the platform. And that's what we've been doing. I mean, we are aiming to declare three to four DCs this year. Platform continues to do, explore opportunities and cancers some of the areas at the same time. I think you also have to be more careful about how fast you grow. This is not the time to just grow for growing purposes. This is the time to really, I think, understand what are the key capabilities you really need at this point to drive the company to the next inflection points in the near term six months, 12 months, 18 months, basically and what inflection points you, you're going to have to deliver against to actually deserve the right to actually have investors come back in and continue to invest into your
0: company. A great point about it's a privilege to be able to fundraise and take VC capital. Yeah. Now, a, a bit of a personal question, Volker. Um, you know, I'm very curious about how people work, and particularly when you're a, a CEO of a of a high growth early stage biotech. There's a lot of people pulling at you, both internally and externally, for your time. So, I'm curious how you tend to organize your day or your week that you found really works well for you to stay on top of things, but still have Perhaps quiet time to think and reflect as well.
1: It's great question. I do try to organize myself every evening when I leave the office for the next day. I look at my calendar and end of the week or the weekend and really understand where are some of the key, key priorities that I need to take. Broadly speaking, I've tried to get really, really good at understanding what meetings and what interventions do I really need to be part on because I can make them better and I can have an impact versus meetings I'm just sitting in because I'm the CEO. And it's nice to be there but quite frankly I'm not adding value because I have great leaders and great people now so you can do that just as well. And that leads to the question you know, how do I balance external and internal engagement? I think that as your role, it's the overall is really important not just you know the classic and I firmly believe investor interactions are really important but as you heard earlier, I think meeting with peer opinion leaders, meeting with patients, meeting with health systems, really being in, in tune what's happening honestly, understanding uh, partnering opportunities how do you build an ecosystem. I have a big believer that ecosystems are so important. I would love to believe that I have the smartest 70 people available in the world at Chanel right now, and I have great talent. But I know there's thousands and thousands of smart, super smart cancer researchers actually with the same passion who could help us actually and really do what we're trying to do here. So, how do I spend actually time and really kind of building that ecosystem, partnerships like on an academic level or company level? How do I really actually get people excited about this? I think is great. And then to me, I'm a huge fan of being accessible as a CEO. I talk about this all the time, open door policy, even though we don't have any doors here. But honestly, to me, that any employee and anybody who works with another knows that if they need to talk to me, they want to talk to me, they can do that. And that their concerns really are my number one priority in the company, I think is probably most important. So often that might be a reason why I actually will. We cancel we schedule a scheduling meeting. We cancel a meeting if I feel somebody needs to talk to me now. And a real impact on that person or the company, I will make that the priority anytime you have that we mm. have
0: Great. And if I can ask you to reflect for one more minute, and uh, you know, given all that you have seen across your career, and I'm sure there's been lots of learnings and insights along the way, if you could provide one piece of advice to your younger self, what would that be?
1: Can I do three? Yeah, so, of I, course. I, I, yeah. I could <laughs> number one yeah. is Start early on being yourself. You know, I think when you're young and you're trying to do career, I think you often look at, oh, who's successful and how are they behaving and what are they doing? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a been part of what you do, but I think the earlier you can understand, but that's not me. That's really important because I think authenticity and being genuine is the most powerful asset any human being any any manager has. So the earlier, I think you can really know how do I want to show up? How do I want people to know who I am? I think the better for you, the happier you'll be and the more successful you'll be. That's one. Number two is enjoy the journey as much as the destination. This is a long, if you just think about the destination all the time, and you're really not enjoying every step of what you do, I think you're going to miss mm. on so many great things. And that includes network, never stop learning, never stop asking great questions along the way, basically, because a real help to find your way. Mm. But really don't lose the sight of where you want to go really enjoy how you get there and honestly, if that takes quite some turns, even better. And that's why I'm yeah. teaching for this as well. The last one is listen more, speak less. Because I think again as a young as a young man as a young manager, you know, I think it's you want to impress, you think the more you talk, great, the earlier you understand how much more powerful listening is and reflecting before you speak, I think the better off you'll be
0: I'm curious, you know, to double-click on the first one that you said of, you know, just being authentic. Is there an anecdote there around how you were being or behaving in the early days versus now, how you lead and manage?
1: You know, I was very lucky. As a relatively young business unit leader of a couple of thousands of reps and commercial folks in the government organization, I was put in, in front of a decision right during a POA meeting that's kind to being together, all the sales for everybody, about sharing some information with all of those folks. That was a little tricky to share, but um, I just really kind of opened that meeting as a business unit leads with a motor that was trust to conquer for specific reasons. I was feeling people weren't trusty, we weren't speaking the truth. And so I had to make a decision and decide to actually indeed share that information with my business unit. It led to an interesting reaction, you know, in many regards of people really doubting why I would do that or not, but it bought me one thing. Everybody in the organization knew that I did what I said I would do. I had said trust will conquer and I trusted them to actually really keep information that was important to care to be kept within the business unit that they did. And that allowed me to really, I think, authentically lead that organization to a lot of turmoil and really have such impact and such Mm. false trust. And trust, I think, is a topic that is everything, right? In running an organization that has stayed with me throughout the last 25 years since that, that thing happened, honestly, as, as the mark in my life is that was called me being authentic, being doing what you say you're going to do. It's yeah. one of the most important aspects of any manager, any human being, quite from your I areas. there is.
0: Yeah, certainly agree. On that salient advice, Volker, wonderful chatting with you today. Thanks for joining us and to share a small part of your journey.
1: Great pleasure. I really enjoyed this. Same here. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.